God speaks to us in his word in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Just really appreciate the effort you put into that just now. I know that was tough. I know that was, took a lot of practice and you know what I mean? Just really kind of figuring out what all to say. Hey, my name is Ben. It's good to meet you. If I haven't met you yet, really glad that you're here. Uh, yes, open up to Genesis chapter one. If you are new to Frontline, which there are a lot of you in here that are, um, you, we preach through books of the Bible and we have just started a series on the book of Genesis, which literally means beginning. Um, and we started last week, we did an overview of the book and now we're jumping right into what does it mean for God to have ordered the world the way that he did? What does it mean for God to have created the world the way that he did? What does it even mean that God himself created the world and created us? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a powerful statement. It's also very compact. It's the question being answered immediately. The question that we ask, where do we come from? Who did all of this? Why was I born? Why is the world so crazy? Who made mountains? Somebody surely had to. There's no way that those things could be, even if you're like totally atheist, totally just not even believing that uh, any sort of higher power can exist. When you stroll up on the Grand Canyon, there is a sense of wonder and awe and it feels bigger than you. Where did it come from? Who did it? Who made it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So much wonder, power, majesty, beauty, and also mystery in this one phrase. Today, we're gonna talk about creation, the creation narrative. And that word's very important because it really is, in fact, a narrative. It's a story. We're gonna dig into what does it mean that God created all things? What does it mean that he made the heavens and the earth? What do these words mean? What does it matter for us today? Because it actually matters a lot. The reality is, is it's a better question for us is asking who created, um, not if created. I wanna point out something that's very important, I think, for us today as we tackle Genesis 1, but also um, just societally, just kind of where we live in Oklahoma, we live in a place known as the Bible Belt. If you've been at our church more than one time, then you have heard that state statement more than one time from this pulpit. We feel like we are uniquely called to speak to um, the overchurched and the undergospeled. And what I mean by that is that it's really easy for us to know stories, to know in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you've been in church a hundred times or three times, you will know some of that story. But what I need us to do today and what I'm hoping that we do is sort of get past the things that we think we know and let it dig into our heart. And one of the traps of knowing so much, having heard so much, is we fall into this idea, this thing that says, quite honestly, you have to and I have to, in order to trust something, I need to know exactly where that thing came from. I need to know exactly how it was made. I would like to know, was it made ethically? I will spend 10 years of my life, not literally me, but 
maybe some of us will spend 10 years of our life or just hours upon hours online trying to study like, okay, I wanna buy this one thing. I need to know what country it was made in, who made it, what their social security number is, um, what their bank account looks like, where they live, how many dogs they have. Do they love cats? Do they love dogs? I need to know everything about them because I wanna know if it was it ethically made. There's actually nothing wrong with that. But part of the problem with that is this, is that we do that with every single type of thing. We wanna know how it was made. We wanna know all the details before we can actually trust it. And actually in our life, we wanna know what's gonna be the outcome. If I do this, I need to know exactly how it's gonna affect my life. The problem with that is this, is that the Bible uses a word to describe our relationship with God, and it's this, faith. It's faith. The Bible also uses a word which we absolutely hate. It's the word mystery. And what I'm gonna present to you today, and what I think is overtly obvious given the scripture, is that what Genesis is trying to do is not to prove all of the details in a scientific way about how God created the heavens and the earth. It'd be easy for us to get hung up on those kind of silly details because the point is actually for us to stand in awe and wonder of who made the heavens and the earth, not exactly how. That's the point, is worship. So I'm gonna start by giving you some context to kind of bolster that point. I need you to pay attention, man. If you, if you take notes, um, again, I've said this now two weeks in a row, it's rare for me to say it. If you take notes, you're gonna absolutely love today's sermon. I'm gonna give you pages and pages worth of notes that you can write down. Let's talk about context. First, this, we said it last week and we need to reiterate it today and probably every time that we walk up here to preach on Genesis. Remember that this book was not written to you. It wasn't. The book of Genesis, like every book in the Bible, context matters so much because it wasn't written to you. The, Philippian, the uh, uh, Philippians was written to a church in a town called Philippi. It's not written to you. However, same with Genesis, it was written for us. It is written for us and not to us. So let's talk about how it was written, who it was written to. Israel, the story of God's people, God's people, the nation of Israel, they had been in slavery for 400 years. If you know the Bible at all, or if you know it somewhat, maybe you grew up in church and you've heard the story of Moses parting the Red Sea and delivering people from the hands of uh, the captor, um, enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Well, that is a true story. Moses was sent by God to deliver his people who had been enslaved for 400 years. That is a long time. Can you imagine what your brain, what you would have absorbed if you had been anywhere for four years, much less 400? I mean, people ask me like, Ben, what did you do this week? And I have to go, okay, what day? And then they'll ask me this day. And then I'll be like, man, is there, is there like a video camera that could have recorded me so just so I can play it back and remember exactly what I did on that day? Because I don't know what I did on Thursday. I can't remember. For 400 years, can you imagine being inundated with all of those pagan rites and rituals? Even pagan creation stories. They were for that many years told one thing about their God and told a whole nother thing, inundated. I had a friend tell me uh, earlier after the first service uh, who studied some of this, he said the Egyptians even sowed their mythologies and their religion into the board games that they played. How interesting is that? They would play board games that would either represent the afterlife or represent creation or whatever. So for 400 years, 
God's people were tempted with losing their identity and also losing who created them and why. Moses, by God, is now given the task. Genesis was written post-Exodus Israel. They had Egypt in them. They had gotten out of Egypt, but Egypt was, was in them. And their identity was shaken, you could tell by their actions. They said on multiple accounts, but one specific, we don't know if we can trust God, even though he had delivered them through plagues, proven his power, they get into the wilderness and there's one moment where they don't have bread and water or bread and wine exactly when they think they should and they say, it would be better for us to go back into slavery because at least then we'll know where our food comes from. Now that might sound crazy to you and me today to go like, wait a minute, isn't it obvious that God delivered you? But that's exactly what we do. We want proof, we want it here and now. We wanna know how, we wanna know when, we want, I want it on my watch. It's just easy for us. We live in a world where we can click a button that says buy now. And immediately something comes to my door from amazon.com. <laughs> no offense, I do it too. It comes the next day. And sometimes I'll even be like, why is this saying it's gonna be two or three days before it gets here? I pay for Prime. Should be here tomorrow. That's what the Israelites were doing. They had forgotten God. They didn't know how to trust God. They needed proof. They had been inundated with these stories of other gods. So we're gonna talk a little bit about the stories that would have come to them, what they thought about creation. Real quickly, one called the Epic of Atrahasis, 1,200 pages long. Another, if you study literature at all, the Epic of Gilgamesh, very popular creation story. And then finally, the one that we're gonna camp on, there's several. There's one called the Enuma Elish, pagan, Mesopotamian, Babylonian creation story, just to name a few. There were similarities of all these, um, including a, a story, an account of a great flood. They each had some account of how the earth was made, and they each had some account of how humans were made as well. Most involved some sort of conflict between gods. There would be gods who were at war with each other and then out of their conflict, it would spill over and particularly one, the Enuma Elish. And I'm gonna tell you this, you're gonna think this is crazy, but it's actually not. This was widely believed that one God rose up against the other gods and another God came against that God who was in rebellion and killed this God. And um, if you don't like weird scientific borderline horror stories, cover your ears cut the God straight down the middle in half and divided the God's body and one part of the body equaled the sky, the heavens, and one part equaled the earth. That's how the earth and the heavens were made. Not joking. These gods who were powerful enough to just exist and accidentally make a planet were so bored and they were so overwhelmed with how much care and work went into earth and they were also hungry and couldn't figure out how to feed themselves Again, same gods who accidentally made a planet. That they created humans to work the earth, take care of it, and also produce food for them to eat. That's the story of the Anuma Elish, very much believed by the Egyptians. Moses was tasked to lead his people to a proper understanding through God of how God created the heavens and the earth and how he made man. 
We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but what God did compared to what these other accounts, these mythological accounts of creation is pretty astounding and really powerful. God, through Moses, needs to reshape their wonder and their identity toward him and his creation. This is the story not of how many literal days or hours or did God use an Apple Watch or the Roman calendar to make the earth, how old is the earth, that, had, that literally is not even up for, it's not even part of what this was written for. This is a story about the wonder and power, absolute, complete and total power of God to make everything out of his mouth and with his hands. So let's start by talking about him as the creator, God the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not stuttering, no need to pontificate. Here's the fact, there is one God according to this. He made it all. His name here is Elohim, Elohim. It's mentioned 35 times in this chapter. It is mentioned more in this chapter than any place in the Bible. God is actually about to change his name. He's gonna keep Elohim, but he's gonna adopt a new name, Yahweh, here in another couple of chapters. But Elohim, loosely, in Hebrew means this, the one true God, it's plural and singular at the same time. Elohim is three gods in one, the Trinity. It means the one true God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all everything. To say Elohim means that I am, I am recognizing you, God, as more than just yourself, but totally yourself, three in one. And I'm also recognizing that you have all power, unimaginable, unrivaled power. And God is saying to us in Genesis, by mentioning his name 35 times, I want you to see this was not a pantheon of gods at work. This was one God, and that one God has eternally existed and has eternal power. This book is about Elohim, not his creation or whether or not his method fits into our ideals. He is beyond. He is different. He is other. He comes to us. We don't come to him. Derek Kidner says it this way, this passage and indeed the book is about him, God, Elohim. First of all, to read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. We don't go to it to investigate it. We don't go to it to try and fill up our ideas about what science should or shouldn't look like or to argue about whether or not photosynthesis took place in the plants. That's not why it's written. It's written for us to see, feel, know, be in awe of Elohim. In the beginning, God, powerful, created the heavens and the earth, period. To Israel, this account would have stood in direct contrast to the other creation accounts like Anuma Elish we just talked about. Here's the comparison in short. Anuma Elish or other creation, mythological creation accounts. Many God versus one God. In those accounts, you would have gods in conflict. In the Genesis account, you have a God who's at peace and perfectly satisfied, which is a very important point. He did not create because he was bored. He did not make man because he was lonely. God himself is totally satisfied, Elohim, meaning three in one. He created because he is a creator. 
and he created out of his character, which his character is innately good. That changes the way that we see the world. God made the earth and made you and made everything in it because God is powerful and good. In other accounts, God created man to work the earth, to keep them from working the earth, and then to feed them. But here we have in Genesis an all-powerful, all-knowing, totally complete and satisfied God who creates the earth and man and then feeds man. Mythologies understood the sun and the moon and the stars and sea creatures as powerful gods. Genesis says that they were created, that they were just creatures, that they too were spoken into existence. Scholars even say that Moses made a point to avoid using the words, the terms for sun and moon in verse 16 so that they wouldn't be misunderstood as gods. He simply says, greater and lesser lights. God created with intention, not out of need or conflict. He created out of his character. Again, goodness, he orders it all. That's called cosmos, that's called cosmology. God ordering the universe for worship. We'll get into that a little bit. God is a creator. Second, let's talk about the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two phrases there that we need to look at. In the beginning, original language simply means a very, 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 very long time ago. It's just like the beginning of Star Wars, you know. A long time ago. In the beginning, no specific timetable. We cannot pinpoint it. We cannot use carbon dating to go, okay, this is exactly when. Right then. That's not the point. A long time ago, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth, loosely translated, means literally just everything. That blows your mind, I'm sure. A long time ago, Elohim made it all. He made everything. And then in verse two, we see this. And this is where we start to cue in to the rest of the details of creation. The earth was without form and void. The earth that God had created was formless and it was empty. Becomes filled by God the creator. The word create is used in the Old Testament only in reference to God. It's six times in this account because only God can truly create something out of nothing. He brings order. The, the formless and void world, God is about to bring order to chaos. He's about to make form out of formlessness, fill the void. This is what God does. He makes life out of death. He brings something out of nothing. He's creator. He gives us a heart of flesh and removes our heart of stone. earth is filled by God the creator and it's filled by his word and God said we see that 10 times in this chapter and God simply and emphatically says let there be light there was light that's power eight times we see this phrase let there be and then it's followed by this resolute phrase and it was so. The author is trying to get us to see something. 
When God says a thing, it's final. It's done. And some of you maybe today have wondered like, I think that the Lord has saved me. I think that I'm his. I think that, I'm, I think that God has named me. I would ask you simply this. Has God named you? Has God saved you? Do you remember that time? And maybe instead of us just like running around in circles chasing our tail, we can go like, hey, if God said it, it's final. Maybe I need to pay more attention to his words. Elohim is working and it's instant. It's not strenuous. He's not sweating. It's not done out of conflict. And he is in every way unrivaled. Genesis 1, 3 through 5, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now we're about to get into the work of creation. God is going to do something very powerful and needed. He's gonna take a formless, void world and he's gonna start to form it and fill it. Forming and filling. What we see is this sort of parallel. These days run in parallel in tandem with each other. Days one through three, he's forming the world. In days four through six, he's filling the world. They actually coincide. I'm gonna show you here in a little bit. We have six days of creating, six days of God leading the earth. Now, how is he leading the earth? One of the things we talk about a lot from this stage is pattern. And we don't use that word, but when we use the word liturgy, we are literally using a word that defines and describes pattern. Pattern, these are the discipleship, the liturgies of your life. You all have liturgies. I don't know what time you wake up. I don't know what your class schedule is. When you get your class schedule, at the start of school or when you get your work schedule or whatever it is, that is by definition, in the truest sense of the word, a liturgy. You're like, I've gotta go, 8.30, uh, I've gotta go to class on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I, for some reason, they decided to put me, when I went to college, they decided to put me in a 7.30 a.m. hour and 15 minute college math class. Probably explains a lot about the way I am today or the way I'm not. Needless to say, I struggled. That's neither here nor there. That 7.30 class, me waking up to go, that is a liturgy. That's a plan. That's an order to my life. We do that in worship. We have certain liturgies. We sing. Everything you do is liturgical. You have patterns in worship. And believe it or not, I know it's hard to grasp, but you are constantly worshiping something. What's happening in creation is a liturgy. It's an order, God forming and filling. God himself is forming and filling the earth to worship him. This is fascinating because God is the lead worshiper or the worship leader for the liturgy of creation. Beautiful to me. I wanna show you this pattern on the screen. Six days of creating, six days of God leading the earth in worship. I hope you can see that. I was... Uh, I was re-informed today that I'm actually getting old and so are my eyes because I was back in the back. I was like, is there anything even on the screen right now? So I apologize for those of you who struggle to see, but there it is. We have this parallel, day one, forming darkness and light, morning and evening. It's paralleled with day four, filling sun and moon. Day two, we see the sky and the sea formed. And day five, we have not filled with birds and fish. Day three, we have formed the land and the plants. 
and day six, it's filled with animals and humanity. And then also in day six, the only thing that's both formed and filled is the creation of mankind. This is where it does us no good to get caught up in time frame or types of days being described here. This is simply not the point at all, like we said. God is telling us about his power and purpose. And it's interesting to note just how easy we are uh, distracted and diverted uh, our attention is um, into silly and trivial things. We would just assume to get caught up in these details that don't matter than we would to look at and ponder and be in awe of all-powerful Elohim. David Atkinson says this, to the Hebrew mind, what mattered about time was not so much in what order things happen as the significance that the moment held. God is conducting, he is leading the earth in worship of himself. Another thing that's mentioned, this phrase, according to its kind. Leading up to the creation of man, we have six days of creation and then this repeated phrase, everything made according to its kind. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit. That's important. Why would he mention fruit trees bearing fruit? Because we'll get to that in Genesis 3. In which is their seed according to its kind on the earth? And it was so. Verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And then we end, we get to the climax of his creation. The one thing that was made according to another kind, the creation of man. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness according to our kind and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. He sang literally according to his kind. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And listen to this, this is the first and, and, and most final time we see this in the scripture and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Next week, we're gonna hear more about, Pastor Josh will be here to preach on uh, what does it mean for us to be made in the image of God. But I wanna point out a few things for us today. First this, God creates mankind in his image with intention and with blessing. God creates man according to his kind, with intention and with blessing. Second, man is given authority. We are given authority that proves that we're in the likeness of Elohim. Elohim himself have authority, all authority. He gives us authority and dominion over fish and seas and animals. Third, we are, we are a delight in him and we are a delight to him the proof is in the blessing, and God blessed us. That's delight itself. Fourth, he's given us purpose and command. We are simply different creatures than the rest, actually not even creatures at all, made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. 
He gives us a command. Like priests in a temple, he tells us be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. We're not ordinary creatures. Now why would the Lord tell us to fill the earth and subdue it? Here's why. In Genesis 2, one through three, we're about to see the point of creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Remember that word, finished. And all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Of all the days, God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's a lot of all his work that he had done. Just in case, the author's saying, just in case you were wondering if there were other people involved, there wasn't. There's one God, all the work that he has done. We have six days of creation, forming and filling, days one through three, forming, days four through six, filling, and then there's one day that stands alone. No forming, no filling, just this. One day, one full day devoted to rest. What does it mean that the one day that is blessed and holy is the day of rest? Quickly, I wanna talk to you about the Old Testament and the way that God has established his temple on earth. There was a seat that was made for God. It was called the mercy seat. It was in a place that was in the temple by design called the Holy of Holies the place where God himself rested. The people of God were allowed access into the Holy of Holies one time a year. One priest, the high priest, the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And because God could not, because he was so particular and because he's so holy, they would actually have to tie a rope around the priest's um, waist just in case he did something and messed up while he was in there because to handle the presence of Elohim, means you have to be perfect and spotless and sinless. They would tie a rope around the priest and he would go in there, there would be a bell on the rope. If the bell rang, that means he fell over and died and didn't make it. Just pull him out. Powerful. This is a God who does not mess around with darkness. This is a God who doesn't mess around with sin. God, seated on the mercy seat, the access that we had to a holy God was through a priest. Let me prove my point. What's happening on the earth, we see a seven day creation story, the same amount of days that God instructed his people to build a temple, a tabernacle. Actually, it coincides in multiple ways. What is happening with God's creation of the earth is this. God is creating not just a cool venue. This is not God's way of saying like, I'm gonna have the best Airbnb or whatever. God is literally creating a temple for his resting place for his presence. Seven days of temple building, seven days of creation. John Walton says it this way. In a temple construction project, the structure was built and the furniture and trappings were made in preparation for the moment when all was ready for the dedication of the temple. On this occasion, normally a seven-day celebration, the functions of the temple were declared, the furniture and hangings were put in place, the priests were installed to initiate the temple's operation. Somewhere in the process, the image of the deity was brought into the temple to take up residence, to take up rest. One guy I quoted last week said it this way. 
Human beings were in fact the climax of God's creation, but they weren't the goal. The goal was to get to the seventh day, a resting place, a seat for the presence of God with his priests that he created. You were made with a purpose. Your job created under God, by God, in his image, was to work the ground to keep it, to prepare a place for his rest. The temple, tabernacle, would have been decorated with fruit trees, leaves, stones, etc., made to look like the Garden of Eden. There's a Hebrew word used for light in Genesis 1. The sun and moon, let there be light. The greater light and the lesser lights. It only shows up in other places when describing lights in the temple. God told Adam to work and keep the garden. It's the same phrasing that God would use to describe the job description of the priests, work and keep the temple. The dedication of the temple was done on a seven day feast. I love this. The end of the week, the end of work is rest, but it's also the beginning. It all comes back to and centers on rest, the seating of God. The point of creation is so that God would build a temple for his presence, and he made man in his image to prepare and keep his temple for him, man and him together in eternal existence and peace. God is the worship leader. We are his choir. Powerful. This is actually the story of the whole Bible. It's not just Genesis. It's from Genesis to Revelation. There is a point, a pattern, a liturgy. God is giving us his very word, his very heartbeat, that it's not by happenstance. You are not uh, just so happened to be created. You are not just so happened to be here today, by the way, and hear this sermon. God, who is sovereign over your life and everything, has a plan, has a purpose. Ultimately, it's for him to form and fill the earth and for him to be seated in it. In Genesis, we see God forming and filling, creating a resting place. Then all throughout the Bible, towards the end, we have this image of God when he returns. Jesus wearing a white robe, and it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, he will rest with them, he will be seated with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. From start to finish, the earth was created as a mercy seat, as a holy of holies, as a resting place for God. You were made as the priest to order the earth, to subdue it in worship of him. This is why it just doesn't do us any good to just avoid what we were created for. This is why we get out of sorts. This is why when we try to do our own thing or make a temple for ourselves, we get bent out of shape and our life just falls apart. You ever notice that? The thing that you have convinced yourself will be good for you is actually sometimes the thing that's the worst for you. And you'd be like, I didn't plan on that happening that way. Well, the better question is to go like, am I worshiping God with my life? Am I working the soil? Am I keeping up the temple of my life? The Bible even describes the church as the temple and it describes you individually as the temple. From Genesis to Revelation, 
We see God working and building and forming and filling, and then he will come back to ultimately and completely be seated here, dwelling with his people. But the problem is this, and you and I both know it, is that there is something that has happened that will ultimately keep us from that. And it doesn't have to do with God, but it has to do with us. In Genesis 3, we see this crazy scene take place where man, which is you and I, not just like some story somewhere, man rejects God's design and they reject trusting God because they fall in the same trap that we do, which is what we started with. I have to know it. I want you to prove it. So when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God actually say, she says, and him together, yes, God said, if we eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will surely die. But because they had to have proof, but because they're so easily um, betrayed and dismayed, the serpent simply said to them, you will not die. Listen to me. And then they ate the fruit that quickly, that easily. This is the story of you and me. We struggle with trust. And it's one of the points I wanna to make today is that what we like to do is go like, I'm gonna, if God will put trust in me, I will obey him. But it's actually the other way around. The story of God's people is continually God saying, will you obey me? And then I will put trust in you after that. Israel get in the wilderness and they say it would be better for us to go back in the hands of Pharaoh. At least we know where our food is coming from. We are innately because of the fall control freaks. We want to know we want to be our own God. We want to produce fruit for ourselves. When actually the design was for God to produce fruit trees for us. We love these mythologies. We love better the idea that like I think I kind of like. I mean we live at least by it like I want to be the one that makes food for the gods as opposed to the other way around. And that's what Israel was doing. That's why God had to, through Moses, to help them re-identify themselves. You belong to Elohim. You belong to Yahweh. All-powerful. He needs nothing from you, but he does want you. The story between Genesis and Revelation is for us because of Genesis 3 is a broken one. There has to be a way for us to be restored to the way that God has created and built and formed the earth. God himself, look, this is the gospel. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times, but this is the truth. It all centers back towards Jesus. In Genesis 2, we see that phrase that I told you to hang on to. It says this, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day, God finished the work that he has done. That's an important word, finished, because we see it again in the work of Jesus on the cross in John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth, <clears throat> excuse me, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. This is the second time now that Elohim has said it's finished. In Genesis 2, he saw it. He saw the works were finished. He rested. And now in John 19, he says, it is finished. He rests. The Bible describes Jesus now as having seated at the right hand of the Father. God the Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, the work of creation and the work on the cross. Jesus took the sour cup of sin and death so that we could be restored to Elohim, 
and ultimately pave the way for man to be redeemed to our original intent, which is this, the family of God created in his image for worship, dwelling in his temple with him. You cannot, I, I don't know what authors you follow. I don't know who, how clever you think they are or you think that you are. None of us and nobody you've ever met is just clever enough to just fabricate this story out of thin air. Elohim is the author of his creation. He's the author of our story. He's the author of redemption. And he will come back to dwell with us in the temple that he's made for his presence. That's why this is not about the Roman calendar or time frames or six or seven literal days or how long the earth is or whatever. It's not even about that. It's about us bowing down before God who is all powerful and all knowing and made everything out of nothing from his mouth and saying, I, I wanna worship him. It's about you realizing that your life outside of worshiping God, that you are always worshiping something. And when we don't worship God, when we don't center our life around him, then ultimately we're out of sorts, out of whack, we're out of the way that we were created to be. So the invitation today is this, let yourself be in awe. Let yourself order the liturgy of your life to worship God, to prepare the temple, to prepare the temple for worship of him. Let yourself be someone who loves and runs to and wants his presence and his power in your life. That's what's crazy about God. He's both Elohim and Yahweh. Yahweh means God our Father. It means God who is near. And you know what he called him when he, when, he, when he became Jesus? When Jesus was born, they gave him multiple names, but one of the names they gave him was Emmanuel, which means this, God, Elohim, with us. That's profound. This is a God who makes everything out of nothing and also is so near to you in your brokenheartedness. The Bible says that he is very near to the brokenhearted. And Matthew tells us this, Jesus says, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. That's crazy how good he is. He's so good. Let's stand together.